Good morning, Calvary Store family. I hope everyone's doing well this morning. I have the joy of getting to talk about Romans 11, which is a highlight chapter for me. Uh, so let's jump right in. Uh, chapter 11 is the third chapter in this kind of tangent that Paul has on how the church should be viewing Israel. Remember, he calls them his brethren according to the flesh. And he first says that, uh, you know, listen, these people, it's not a surprise to God because he's always reached out his hand to disobedient Israel. In verses 1 through 6, we see Paul ask this question, has God cast away his people? And with a resounding no, Paul reminds the reader that he himself is a Jew and he gives a great scriptural reference to the fact that uh, as a nation, even when the nation in general is going against God, there's always a believing remnant. And that's not by anything they've done, but by God's grace alone. In verses 7 through 10, Paul takes us to the point where he says that Israel as a nation, and from our standing in history right now, this has been about 2,000 years now, that as a nation, Israel has been blinded and uh, kind of deafened. They don't hear properly either. And so uh, verses 11 through 15, we see that this is, uh, to me, an amazing passage that we shall really uh, dive into because Paul points out that even in missing who the Messiah was and is, God used it for an amazing purpose. And that's that should remind us of uh, Joseph and what he said to his brothers, that what you meant for evil God used for good, because what we see in verses 11 through 15 is that God allowed the salvation of the Gentile nations through the gospel of Jesus Christ to be made because Israel missed the mark, that their falling, their stumbling, allowed the Gentile nations to hear the gospel and to be saved. And now there's this relationship, and I've seen it on the streets, this relationship where the Israeli or the Jew can't understand how the relationship that a believer has with God that the Jew doesn't have. And so that provoking to jealousy in that relationship that's had with a spirit-filled relationship to God through Jesus the Messiah. And Paul points out that in, in the sense of the Gentile nations seeing who Jesus is because of the stumbling of Israel, he points out what will it mean when Israel's blinders are removed and Israel finally sees who Jesus is? Because if the salvation of the nations was brought forth by Israel missing the mark, what will it be when they, when they see it, when they see Jesus for the Messiah that he is? The Holy Spirit through Paul says it will be life from the dead. That's just incredible, right? So if you want to see the resurrection, if you want to see life from the dead, we need to make sure that Israel sees Jesus. So what a fantastic time in history to plant seeds of Jewish evangelism. Verses 16 through 24, um, Paul reminds us that Gentile believers who are anti-Israel or pro-replacement theology should walk in fear. Paul uses a, uh, a word picture of a natural olive tree and a wild olive tree, that if there's any pride in the Gentile believer saying things like, oh, well, I know God and you don't, or I've replaced you and you're nothing to God anymore, Paul points out, again, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that if God didn't spare the natural branches, speaking of Israel, he may not spare you either. So 
there is a position here that Paul is really putting rubber to the road and making sure that as Gentile believers, they understand they should never be haughty or prideful against Israel, even though they missed the mark. This was God's plan. And for the rest of the chapter, we see that Paul is reminding, uh, reminding us that there will come a time when all Israel will be saved. Now, there's controversy over that. Does he mean every Israelite, all of national Israel at the time that it happens? Or is he still referring to Romans 9, 6, where he says that for they are not Israel, which are of Israel? So uh, I guess we'll just have to see what God's plan is. But in the, the rest of the, uh, the chapter, we see that God points, you know, Paul points out that God's calling on Israel as his chosen people is irrevocable. It will never change. God's calling is without repentance. And in closing this perspective on how the church should view Israel, Paul points out the incredibly deep wisdom that God has in having the whole dynamic of make his son famous to the whole world through Israel missing the mark and bringing the nations to the saving knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus. So um, good morning, and uh, I'll hand it off to PB. Thanks. Amen. Great job. All of these videos have really been precious to my heart. Just to see the body at Calvary Restore chime in, their viewpoints, their knowledge of the scripture. It's amazing, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, it's just a blessing. Let's pray, and we'll jump into this word. I'll warn you from the beginning while I'm up here. Uh, since I'm not being, I'm able to teach Wednesday, I'll just make it up for today. So it'd be a little longer, <laughs> not that much longer. Father God, we love you. The only reason we can love you is you first loved us. You've chosen us from the foundations of the world, Father God, to inherit your kingdom one day to worship you, to grow in the grace and knowledge of who you are. We will be ever learning about our dear Savior, our dear King, our dear Lord. So, Father, let us put aside the things that may happen throughout the day of what happened yesterday or a week ago, Father. Let us focus on your word this morning. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here to teach us and give us understanding of your word, not a head knowledge, but a heart knowledge, that we will be changed, those that are born again from glory to glory, those that may not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, that they will enter into the family of God through grace by faith in Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, the only Messiah. And Holy Spirit, we, we leave that up to you. But we do ask you to meet us here, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I've said before, chapters 1 through 8, Paul is speaking doctrinally about the church and how the church uh, should be led and directed of what Christ did with propitiation and his justification his sanctification, that Jesus Christ is the only propitiation. He's the only way that we can be saved by our, from our sins by the blood of Jesus. 
And he comes to uh, the ninth chapter of the book of Romans. And he begins to ask, that's good and well. I'm thankful, Lord, that you're bringing Gentiles into your kingdom. But what about my brethren according to the flesh? What about my Jewish brothers and sisters, Lord? Have you forgotten about them? And the reply, the rhetorical reply is, God forbid. May it never happen. Certainly not. So chapter 9, he he begins to speak about the election of the children of Israel, the Jewish people. And then in chapter 10, he begins to speak of their failure. They missed the mark nationally. Jesus being the Messiah, he came to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And then chapter 11, the chapter we're looking at this morning, to show that he's not failed, to show that God knows what he's doing. He says, restoration will come to the Jew. And that's what we'll be seeing. And the reason they stumble the Jew and reason they, they, they fail is because of a, they have a blind spot. And much of Reformed theolog- theology that Israel has been placed, been, been replaced or set aside. And what do you do with Israel? What we need to understand determines the way we look at the majority of Scripture. For instance, seven times in the New Testament, There's talk about the new birth, and that's very important. Twelve times, he speaks of repentance and faith, and that's very important. Fifty times in the scripture, the Lord speaks of baptism, whether it's spiritual baptism or water baptism, he speaks of that 50 times. But in the New Testament alone, there are over 300 references speaking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. It is by far the broadest subject in the New Testament because it speaks of the bridegroom himself returning for his bride, the church. And he wants us to understand that he's coming for us. If I was away from home and my wife and my children were in a hostile territory, either I would be on the phone or by letter letting them know I'm coming. Hang in there. I love you. And no matter what it takes, I'll be back for you. Well, that's what Jesus does with the church here. And the way we interpret these things through the scripture is very important to how we view Israel today. The church for centuries has set Israel aside for all intended purposes. There was a time when we could look at the world and Israel was not a nation. They were gone. So the church and particularly from some of the passages in Romans, like Romans 2.29, the beginning of that verse when it says, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. 
that some of the church would begin to say, we are God's people and Abraham's seed. Now, we are by faith spiritually, but God is not done with the nation of Israel. Scripture speaks of God as the God of Israel over 200 times. We have to understand that Israel, they're human beings too. And the reason I say that, they're saved the way any of us will be saved, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We are no angels, and neither are they. And it's important for us to understand that, and Paul lays it out so plainly. It's amazing how anybody could be confused. Like I said before, there's been great theologians who goes through chapter 1 through 8 of Romans. They get to chapter 9 through 11, and they just crash and burn. They can't seem to fit it together, what's going on with Israel. But we have to understand, I take the Bible literally. It's so simple. When Jesus Christ speaks of a parable, he lets us know it's a parable allegorically. He lets us know those things. Everything else beside that is literal. And if you read your word like that, you will not get confused about Israel. When Israel, before they became a nation, most theologians said the church has replaced the nation of Israel. C.H. McIntosh, and I, I, you would be blessed if you read his writings. C.H. McIntosh, a great scholar in the 1860s. Uh, uh, Joseph Geist, another great scholar. They said, I don't know when it's going to happen in the 1860s. But if you interpret the scriptures literally, the nation of Israel will be back. And they were correct because they did interpret the scriptures literally. So Paul says at the last part, verse 21 of chapter 10, he leaves us with a question. But to Israel, he says, God, we had seen that Isaiah said this and another prophet said that. But then it screams at us in verse 21. God says, let us get it straight. This is what I say. All day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And there's no chapter breaks. That's for us. Verse 1 of chapter 11. I say then, has God cast away his people? Now, the question is a natural one. Israel refusal to acknowledge the Messiah, Jesus Christ who is the only mediator of God's righteousness, would seem to mean that they should no longer claim or be God's people here. Paul says, has has God cast away his people? He says, God forbid, certainly not. Romans 9, 14, Paul asks the rhetorical question, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness? With God. 
Once again, Paul says, certainly not. That's a ridiculous question there. And so is this one. Paul's logic is, for I also am an Israelite, not a Palestinian. He says, an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. The media may be confused about this, but we should not be. Anyone born in Israel before 1948 on their birth certificate, it says Palestinian because it was called Palestine at that time. The reason it was called Palestine is because when the Romans drove the Jews out in 70 AD, so angry at the Jews that they took the name of their perennial enemy and gave that name to the land Philistines. So they named the land Philistines, which is Palestine. But it is the nation of Israel. Paul says, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. His point, if God had cast away his ancient people, I wouldn't be saved. It isn't that he took the Jews lock, stock, and barrel and threw them out the window. No, he didn't do that. Paul said, look at me. I'm a believer. God isn't done with the Jews, period. He will say God's not done with them nationally, as Scott was saying, either. Verse 2, he says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Now, back in Romans 8, 20 time, when Paul was just exhorting and encouraging the church that you can be securely assured that if you're in Christ, you can boast on those things. He says this, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. I told you that word foreknew is not an intellectual knowledge that Christ has for those that were predestined. No, he entered into a relationship. That's what that word means. Before the foundation of the world to those who would enter his kingdom. He chose them before. That's what election means. So what he's saying here, out of Israel nationally, there is that remnant that will be saved. He goes on to say, or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Now, that's an amazing statement. Elijah is so disturbed. Elijah is so blown away that he would plead with God to get rid of his chosen people. He's praying against Israel. That would be like you guys praying against me for God to get rid of me. That's not very nice. Not this early in the game anyway. But that's what's happening here. God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. This is the account of King Ahab 
attack on the prophets of Yahweh. Then you know he ruled in in the northern part of Israel. There was not one good king that came out of Israel. I know that breaks the Lord's heart. After learning of Ahab's slaughter of the prophets, Jezebel threatened her nemesis, Elijah, that the same thing would happen to him. So Elijah runs and he begins to bemoan his faith. And he's whining and he's crying that, Lord, you have no one else who loves you but me. I do that sometimes. But the Lord speaks up and he says in verse 4, But what does the divine response say to him? God speaks to him. And he says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, he says, don't worry about it. I'm in control. God is saying, I still have a remnant like I had in Elijah's day, Paul. Paul has said in chapter 9, verse 6, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect because we know when the word is spoken, when the word is read, it's going to accomplish what the Lord has sent it out to accomplish. He goes on to say, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. I remember when I played basketball my senior year in high school, and our arch rival, I played for Central Gwinnett, was a, a team, and they were called Burkmar High School, 10 miles down the road. And we would always scrimmage in the summertime, Burkmar against Central. And Central, which was my team, we always beat them in the summertime. And I'll never forget the guy's name, Johnny Duncan. Cool, cool white boy, bad white boy. He could play basketball. And I'm telling you, we beat them all the time during the summer. And I'll never forget, as, as I was reading this, he walked up to me and he said, you know what? The cream always rises to the top. And they would beat us every time when it counted. That's what the Lord is saying here, that all of Israel is not truly Israel. And the cream will rise to the top. Paul's point is, in Israel nationally, there is the true Israel. In regards to believing the promises made by Abraham. So he says, what was God's divine answer to Elijah? When he thought that the Jews were gone, game over. Even then God had a remnant. And he has one now. Verse 5, even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. That's the only reason we are sitting here this morning, knowing Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior by the grace of God. Surely we wouldn't begrudge that grace to the nation of Israel. God is not done with his ancient people. If he deals with us with grace, why wouldn't he deal with them in the same grace? This problem of anti-Semitism isn't just endemic in the church or the church age. Anti-Semitism 
in one sense, where it really began in Genesis chapter 3, when God tells Adam, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Revelation 12 begins to expand on that. The only time you have that phrase, the seed of the woman, because it's, the only, it's only the seed of the man in reproduction. So, of course, the seed of the woman speaks of the virgin birth. You follow that seed, and anti-Semitism is attached to it because it's the coming of the Messiah and the enemy Satan knows that. We see that seed try to pollute in the days of Noah. Genesis 6, verse 2 says this, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took, that's a violent taking, and they took wives for themselves, all of whom they chose. Again, the enemy tried to eradicate the seed in Egypt, when all of the firstborns of Israel were thrown into the Nile River and drowned. You see anti-Semitism in ancient Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Medo-Persia, and Rome. It continues through the history of the church. All of the original church fathers, the apostles, I want you to hear this, from Papias onward, for the first century and a half, all were pre-millennialist. All believed in Christ's coming and setting up his kingdom for a thousand years in Jerusalem. All believed that the future of the church was directly linked to the future of the nation of Israel. It's not until Oregon in the second century that the idea that God is done with Israel came about. Even Augustine, who gave us some great things, a a brilliant man adopted this uh, position here because of the Catholic Church. And they developed a, a, a position of all millennialism, that there's no millennium. They also said there was no priesthood except the Catholic Church priesthood, which shouldn't be there. But they're saying everything that was given to the Jewish people, the church has replaced them, that everything has passed to the church, and that God is done with Israel. And we find that continuing through the church age. Even preterism today, is a hybrid of all millennialism. And it's a dark position to have in regards to the influence of the church. Let me read you something again. I read from this book last Sunday. Won't be much this time, but I'm gonna give you a little reading on this. This is about Martin Luther. In light Of all this, it comes as no surprise that Martin Luther, in his breaking away from the Catholic Church, reached out kindly to the Jews 
at the beginning, he emphasized that Jesus was born a Jew and hoped that. This is what he means. Perhaps I will attract some of the Jews to the Christian faith. For our fools, the popes, bishops, and sophists, and monks, the coarse blockheads, have until this time so treated the Jews that if I had been a Jew and had seen such idiots and blockheads ruling and teaching the Christian religion, I would rather have been a sow than a Christian. For they have dealt with the Jews as if they were dogs and not human beings. This was written in 1523. 20 years later, when the Jews did not convert in mass, when Luther was old and sick, and after seeing some blasphemous anti-Christian literature written by Jewish pens, he had a change of heart. What shall we Christians do with this damned, rejected race of Jews? Luther's answer was, first, their synagogues should be set on fire. Secondly, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed. Thirdly, they should be deprived of their prayer books and Talmuds. Fourthly, their rabbis must be forbidden under threat of death to teach anymore. Fifthly, passport and traveling privileges should be absolutely forbidden to the Jews. Sixthly, they ought to stop from ursery, charging interest on loans. Seventhly, let the young and strong Jews and Jewesses be given the flail, the axe, the hoe, the spade, the distaff, and spindle, and let them earn their bread by the sweat of their noses. We ought to drive the rascally lazy bones out of our system. Therefore, away with them. To sum up, dear princes and nobles who have Jews in your domains, if this advice of mine does not suit you, then find a better one so, you, so that you and we may all be free of this insufferable, devilish burden, the Jews. Almost finished. Later, Lutherans repudiated these despicable remarks, just as the Catholic Church repudiated much of her anti-Jewish biases. But something that was so widespread, so deep, so infecting and polluting, such venomous hatred and prejudice does not die quickly. Luther said that. And that's sad. Luther, he was a brilliant man, like I said before. But he did not see Israel. He took the position of the Catholic Church, seeing them as troublemakers and crucifying the Messiah. We all know the Jews didn't crucify the Messiah. The Romans didn't crucify the Messiah. I crucified the Messiah, and you crucified him also. The Encyclopedia Judaica said this about some of the things Luther wrote. Listen to this. Because of Luther's writings, short of Ossowitz and its ovens and extermination, the whole Nazi Holocaust is pre-outlined here. Is it any wonder 
that Hitler, Julius Steicher quoted Martin Luther as justification for their final solution of the Jews. Wow. Sadly, that, that mistake that he made is still in parts of churches today. The doctrine of replacement theology gave rise to an antagonism in the church. And Satan quickly grabbed a hold of it and produced the Holocaust. Israel is God's chosen people. God said in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's why we are believers this morning. That has never been revoked. God has a plan for his people. And I believe we will get to see that. Our destiny, once again, is linked to the people of Israel. And we should be praying for them. Verse 6 tells us in Romans 11. And by grace, and if by grace then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Work and grace is mutually exclusive. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and the beginning of 23, for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block. Once again, the Jew will say, you're telling me I've kept Sabbath. I've kept all of these dietary laws. I've kept uh, the moral laws. I've kept the traditions and the feasts. And Gentiles, pagan Gentiles, are coming in the faith, knowing Messiah. That's not right. That's what they would say. But that's the message of the New Testament. And that's the message that Paul was communicating. That message there kept the Judaizers on the hill of Paul. And it was a stumbling block to the Jew. He says in verse 7, what then? Israel has not attained what it seeks, correct. Not by the way they were seeking it. They wanted to be righteous by keeping tradition, by keeping the law, which they couldn't keep, in order for Yahweh God to accept them. But God doesn't base his relationships with any of us on whether we are good or not. He bases it on if we are his, in his son, Jesus Christ, or not. If we have allowed his son to save us by grace through faith. And that goes for the legalist also. You cannot, we cannot work our way into the kingdom of God. Paul says, what then? Israel has not attained what it seeks but the elect have obtained it and the rest were blinded or hardened. 
Now, what Paul does here, he distinguishes between three entities or three groups. First one, Israel as a corporate whole. Then the elect. And then the hardened. And what he's saying, so as a corporate entity, Israel has not attained what she was seeking. He said the same thing in in. In, in Romans 9, 31, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness, but the elect have obtained it. The elect Paul is speaking of here is not Jew and Gentile, but to the Jews out of the Jewish nation, there's a remnant. That's the elect he's speaking of that will come to know Messiah as their personal Lord and Savior. And he goes on to say, and the rest is blinded. And when he says, and the rest is blinded, that's passive. That means God is doing it. He's allowing them to be blind. Verse 8, Paul uses each of these three main divisions of the Hebrew canon, the law, the prophets, and the writings. In these verses, he says, just as it is written, God has given them, given them a spirit of stupor. And then he reached back and he grabs from Isaiah 29, 10. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of the deep of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets. And he has covered your heads, namely the seers. Remember when Jesus was healing the sick and opening the, opening the eyes of the blind and the religious leaders were there and he looked around and he questioned their belief because of the hardness of their hearts. All of the things he were doing, they would not believe. And he says, Isaiah was right, and he quotes this verse, because you have a hard heart, and you're not wanting to believe. He grabs that scripture here. He continues. He says, eyes they should not see, and ears that they should not hear. And he says, this goes on to this very day. Then he quotes Deuteronomy 25, 4. He says this, yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. This is, Paul, this is a Moses' final exhortation to the children of Israel before they cross over into Canaan and enter the promised land. He says, but you guys won't appreciate what's about to happen. You don't even appreciate the acts that God has revealed him and himself and how he has revealed himself to you. That's why Paul reaches back and grabs this scripture. And then he goes to David. He says in verse 9, and David says, quoting from Psalm 69, David, when he's praying about his enemies and those that are after him, He says this prayer, let their table, the table of blessing, the table of being privileged to know the Messiah, to have all of these blessings, 
to know the one true God. That's what he's speaking of. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap. That's exactly what has happened nationally. A stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their backs always. What David prayed for his persecutors has happened nationally to the nation of Israel. Exactly what he said. Because they are resisting the good news. They're resisting the gospel. Verse 11, he asked the rhetorical question. I say then, after all of this, have they stumbled that they should fall? That's a once and for all stumbling. That's what he means by that. His answer, certainly not. But through their fall, as Scott was saying, to provoke them to jealousy, the Jewish people, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Praise God for that. They tell me all of the region in Jordan, Muslims are becoming to know Jesus as the Messiah. Just think, in Jordan, Muslim, many of them are becoming to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And they say they think it's because of them coming to faith that will provoke their half-brothers into coming to know their Savior. Isn't that something? Isn't that the amazing work of God, how he would do that? And they say that will bring on the rapture. That's what they're hoping for. And I'm hoping they're right. I hope it comes soon. Verse 12, Paul continues. Now, if their fall, their stumbling, which is not final, if their partial blindness has come from not knowing the Messiah, he says, then it's been a blessing to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. Paul's logic is the blessing that will come to the Gentiles at the time of Israel's fullness will be much greater because Jesus is a Jewish Messiah and our future will be in a Jewish kingdom and he will rule from Jerusalem over the earth. I want you to think back to the prophecy of Daniel in regards to Israel. Gabriel tells him this, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city for these reasons, to finish the transgressions, to make an end of sins. Of course, that hasn't happened yet. To make reconciliation for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness hasn't happened yet. To seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. This prophecy is directly related to your people Israel. The consummation of all things. And without the millennium, this can't happen. 
Without the millennium, truly, Satan wins. Because we know, if you know anything about uh, those seven-year tribulation periods, when the bride of Christ, the church, will be in heaven, God is going to chain him and, and put him in a pit for a thousand years. Without the millennium, there's no end to human history. He says in verse 13, Paul says, for I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. I like that. Paul doesn't take his ministry likely to the Gentiles. He, he, he takes his ministry enthusiastically for the Gentiles. But he also has another reason. Also, he says, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh. He's always thinking about his brethren and save some of them. Paul says, I will do whatever I need to do in order to reach, in order to provoke my unbelieving brethren to the gospel. My question for us this morning, will we do the same thing? While we are sitting around that lovely Thanksgiving Thursday dinner with our maybe unsaved family members, some of them, will we share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ with them? Do we have the passion that Paul has for the entire nation of Israel? Do we have that same passion for our lost loved ones in our own family. What's more important to talk about, are you saved? Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord or Savior or sports and politics? Because that's usually what's kicked around the table on Thanksgiving Day. Let's be in remembrance of those things. Lord, give us a heart like Paul for the laws. He says in verse 15, for if their being cast away is the recon reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? I believe Paul is speaking spiritually here. When, when the Jew returns back to Messiah, it will be like death to life. And when I read this, I think about Ezekiel 37, the vision of the dry bones. When he says, prophecy, Lord, prophesy, Ezekiel, to these bones. Can these bones live? That's what he begins to say here. I know it's kind of long, but enjoy the reading. I'm going to read it to you. Son of man, can these bone li bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know, I like his answer. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know God is always proving himself to us. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied 
there was a noise and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Also, he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry. Our hope is lost. And we ourselves are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Yes, he did. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you. That's what he's doing now. And you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Wow. Verse 16, Paul continues, for if the first fruit is holy, and this comes from Numbers chapter 15, the first part of the dough was offered up to the Lord as a symbol of the whole dough being holy. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. That sheaf that they would raise after the day of Pentecost for the entire harvest. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off. Remember, he's writing this letter to to us, is writing this letter to the home fellowship, the home churches in Rome. Because the the Romans, the, 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 the Gentiles seems to be getting a little haughty. Because the Jews have been, a lot of them, part of the church, they've been told to leave. And it was mostly, at the beginning anyway, a Jewish fellowship. But the Gentiles are being saved. And now when the Jews come back, the Gentile is a little haughty. This is our thing. Sit back in the back, sit back in the corner, and we'll run this show. And Paul is saying, listen up here. And if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. What Paul is saying is if Gentiles who believe have been brought into this covenant that God made with Israel, our hearts have been opened by grace. We know the Messiah by grace through faith. We have joined to be a part of God's people. He says, look, you as a wild branch have been grafted into the natural one. He tells us in verse 18, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Don't be haughty. You didn't save yourself. We still hear 
the rumblings and more, even more rumblings of this today. Blame the Jew for this. Blame the Jews for that. It's negative, but it's also satanic. And it goes once again all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And it travels along through the ages. Anti-Semitism is not something that has just been born. It was always through the line of history because Satan is behind it. It goes all the way back through all of the major kingdoms of the scripture. And we need to understand this spiritual root. Sadly, the church has been blind to this throughout the history. Our blessings, our salvation is through a Jewish Messiah once again. Our future is in a Jewish kingdom. We're told in Psalms 1 and uh, Psalms 22 to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, that God will bless those who bless them. And remember, there's also an apostate church that is going to be cut off in these last days. And that church is the church of Laodicea as it matures into the great harlot is set aside. And when God begins to deal with Israel again, specifically in that 70th week of Daniel, it will begin to happen. So Paul says in verse 19, you will say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Paul is saying, do we deserve for God to look at us and say, we've been justified, sanctified, and glorified? Do we have any right to that? He says in verse 20, well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. And that's a reverential fear, a reverential respect for God with a healthy concern to continue to walk in that grace that the Lord has placed in us. Philippians 2.12 tells us this, speaking of how to continue to walk. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He says this in 2 Corinthians 7.1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Paul says in verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell. Severity, Israel refusal to believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And many of the religious leaders knew he was, but didn't want to give up their position of authority. But towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, if you continue in his grace, he says, otherwise also you will be cut off. 
And again, we see in the book of Revelation, the church once again in the last days, when God begins to work with Israel again, Laodicea, the rights of the people. Finally, they will amalgamate. They will come together into this great harlot system. And you can begin to see it happening now. That's guilty of the blood of the saints, Jew and Gentile. He says in verse 23, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, speaking of Israel, will be grafted in. And I love this part, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off of the olive tree, which is, a, is wild by nature, that's us, and were grafted contrary to nature in a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Israel will be restored. Hallelujah. A pastor tells this story when he was in Israel and they had went to this Messianic Jew home and they had, after he had spoke, the dude was about 65 years of age. And he had be, be, uh, became a believer when he was 15. And so they had a question and answer session. And the question was, someone asked, when were you converted? And in a loving way, he said, no, no. You were converted. I was completed. That's, that's what they say. And he said it in a loving way. He said, I always had the right God. You didn't. I just didn't have all of the information. And this guy, his ministry has exploded. And that's what Paul is saying here. Hey, they had the right God. They just didn't believe the God man who the scripture said he was, even in that Hebrew canon the oracles of God given to them. They thought they could work their way into the kingdom. And that same prayer that David prayed towards his enemies has fallen on the Jew, Jewish people nationally. Paul says in verse 24, for if you were cut off of the olive tree, which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Jonathan, Pastor Jonathan talked about mysteries uh, Wednesday, a very good teaching, speaking of the, the, the uh, marriages something that is hidden, that's been, is being revealed now. That's what Paul is speaking of here. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part, not totally. There are many completed Jews. God is still saving Jews individually. But there is a time that he will deal with the nation altogether. He says, blindness in part has happened to Israel. And then that word right after it, 
until there's a cutoff point to that blindness, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Psalms 110 tells us, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till or until there's always a cutoff point until I make your enemies your footstool. Matthew says in Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39, as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stoned those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. That's his heart. But you were not willing, and that's the problem. He goes on to say, see, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I love how Zechariah says it. He says it beautifully. And this is a great scripture. If you ever get an opportunity to, to witness to an unsaved Jewish person, Zechariah 12, 9, 10, you have the Lord of hosts speaking. Yahweh God is speaking. He says this, it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, what? The spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Wow. That's an amazing verse. When did the Jews ever pierce the Lord of hosts? That's the question we know. He goes on to say in that verse, yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn that will happen. Once again, Matthew says, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke says this about Jerusalem as they're being persecuted and it, and it overlines really in prophecy with the, with, in 70 AD, but it looks to the, in my opinion, to the tribulation period also. Luke chapter 21 verses 22 through 24 says this, for these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until, there it is again, the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Look at what it says in verse 25 of Romans 11 again. For I do not desire, brethren... <clears throat> that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until, not the times, but the fullness 
of the Gentiles had come in. I read all those scriptures to you to let you know this. The Bible speaks of the times of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Gentiles. Those are two different things. The times of the Gentiles, no doubt started under King Nebuchadnezzar. That's when the world empires changed at that time. Up until then, even through Egypt and Syria, God is still working with the nation of Israel. He was still working with them. But when Nebuchadnezzar comes on the scene, the flow of history begins to change. And it went westward from Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greece to Rome to the last days somewhere along the way. That's what's happening. The times of the Gentiles and their subjugation of Israel as a people will come to its fullness. When, when is that? I don't know. Some people say it was 1948 when they became a nation. Some people say it was 1967 in that seven-day war. Some people think it will be Ezekiel 38 and 39. I don't know. But there is times of the Gentiles, and it would happen, and it will happen. But once again, there is also what Paul is speaking of here, the fullness of the Gentiles. And the fullness of the Gentiles is when that last person, that last stubborn person might be watching a day give their lives to Jesus Christ. And that will wrap up everything. The church, in my opinion, will be raptured. We are living, the church is living in the days of grace. I'll never forget, I used to listen to David Jeremiah all the time. I still listen to him every once in a while. And he was, he was going through the book of Revelation and he explained it best, this part right here. He says, Daniel's 70th week. And he begins to speak about when Messiah rode once again on Palm Sunday. That was our day. The numbers figured out everything. If they should have known, Jesus told them when he rides in on that doxile donkey on Palm Sunday, there's your Messiah. Now, if they would have realized that, I still wonder what would have happened to us. But he speaks about the Gentiles all the way through the Old Testament coming in anyway. My point is they should have known. They should have known. Now, he's saying we are living the church age in the days of grace. Come on in. Come on in. But when that last unsaved person believes, we are raptured up out of here. And then while we're having that seven-year honeymoon period, seven years of the righteous wrath of the Lamb will be happening down here. Now, hey, I tell you guys all the time, I love dramas. I love action movies. I hope I get to look over the mezzanine and see what's going on down here for seven years. I'm just like that. I'm not going to be saying, get them, Lord. I'm going to be saying, thank you, Lord. But we're waiting on that last person, stubborn person, to give their lives to the Lord. 
The bride of Christ is unique. In all of the time periods I would want to be saved, I would want to be a part of the church, the bride of Christ. Because we are the only ones that get to take the bread and the cup together with the Messiah. Those that are saved in the tribulation period, those that were saved on the credit card in the Old Testament, they know nothing about this. Even in the kingdom, we'll get to take that together with our Savior, with our loved one. That's precious. And that's what he's leading up to here. Stick with me. I'm always, almost through verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. How good does that feel to Paul? As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. All true Israel will be saved. Not everybody with Jewish blood in their veins is spiritual Israel. That's how I read the scripture. That's what Paul has been saying all the way through chapter 9 to to chapter 11. But they are of the nation God's elect nationally that will be turned back to him. Verse 27, and then he begins to ride with this. For this is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. They, they just can't see it. They just can't put it together. Some can, but once again, as a whole, they can't see it. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he says, for the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Now, please take notice of that statement. The gifts and the callings of God, I'm glad Scott said it a little bit, are irrevocable. We have taken that verse and said it's about the gifts of the Spirit. And I've heard pastors say, God called me, I'm here no matter what I do. You you can't kick me out because God says it's irrevocable. This is my position. He's speaking to Israel on this. Their security on this. What I said to them, I'm not going to take back. That's what he means by that. Paul hearing the Holy Spirit is on him as he's telling Tertullus about all these things. He says in verse 30. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have I now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient, speaking of the Jews, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience. All the way back to to chapter one, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. That's why when Paul begins to piece these things together, 9 through 11, that's why he goes off on this praise that he does. He says, for God, for God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. 
He knows what he's doing, you guys. He understands that. And then Paul goes for it. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. I couldn't figure that out. I could never work this out. You could never work this out. Paul could never work it out. He says, but God has it from the beginning. He's worked it out. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Amen. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? I have at times and you have too. Lord, you shouldn't have did it that way. You shouldn't have did it that way, Lord. I don't understand what you're doing, but Lord, I could have did it better. So we've all been there. But he's just saying, come on, sit down like Job. Sit down. I've got this. We can't even begin to think of what he's doing in our own lives. Or who has given to him and it shall be repaid to him. God will be in debt to no one. He is the initiator. We are all responders. I heard a pastor say, that's why men... And we should be masculinity, macho. We're just made up that way. And we are called the bride of Christ. And you know, women cry at the drop of a dime. My wife does. But anyway, this is my point. But God breaks all of that down. When the Spirit comes and when the Spirit hits, I remember the first time I was saved. I remember sitting in a Pleasant Hill Baptist church. I had just gotten out of jail, going to church with my mama, sitting on the third or fourth row, sung hymns all my life. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. Singing the hymn, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind. Before I said was blind, but now I see the words were jumping off the page. And I was weeping like a baby. And that's not my first time doing that. What I'm saying, my masculinity is nothing compared to your God's. I'm his bride and I'm proud of it. That's what he's saying in here. Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid. For of him, he's the source and origin. And through him, human history has his channel. He has his hand. He has his palm on everything. Nothing comes at a a surprise. That's what he's saying here. And to him, our destiny are all things to whom be glory forever. Let it be. Amen. Can the worship team come up? We don't have to worry. If you're a believer, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we don't have to be anxious about anything. We can rest in a good God. We should pray. We should continually pray for the nation of Israel. Jesus Christ is the Jewish Messiah. And he has called Gentiles like us to his kingdom. God is good. This Thanksgiving day, if we live to get to see it, remember 
the goodness of God. Remember the long suffering of God. Remember the mercy of God. And if we don't have the, 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 the passion that Paul has had for his kindred brothers and sisters, if we don't have that kind of passion for our lost loved ones and our family and friends, pray that the Lord gives that to us. That's why we're here once again. Let's pray. Father God, we're blown away at your wisdom, at your knowledge, at your goodness, at your mercy and your grace, at your justice and your righteousness. Father, and I pray that you will continue to work in our lives to do and to be everything you've called us to be. Lord, I know there's hurting people here in this room. There's hurting people that's watching. But Father, I pray that you would speak to them with that still, small voice like you did with Elijah and let them know, Lord, you're still on the throne. You're in control. And that if there are believers that we're just passing through here, and if it's some that does not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, Father, would you open their eyes as you did Lydia? You open her heart of her understanding. Lord, we cannot come to you unless you first draw us. So I pray, Father, that if we get to see Thanksgiving, that we would be thankful for you each and every day, Father. Lord, we ask you for your grace that we would look and be exactly what you've called us to be, Father. That you would remove everything for, uh, from us that is not like.